tell me about a photograph that you think about often but haven't yet taken. Hmm. A photo I think about often but haven't yet taken. So I have a strong desire to pack one of my larger cameras with big film up into the mountains. I used to do a lot of mountaineering and I didn't really carry a camera much. And in the last few years, I've become really involved in photography again, but have only made a very few trips into the mountains and I haven't taken my big cameras with me yet. And I'm starting to get some viable, fairly lightweight cameras. And I did take one of them on a, a short hike recently and it was very successful. So basically what I'm trying to say is I want to get my larger format cameras up to into the glaciers and the really high peaks and volcanoes around here. So that's something I want to do. And is it, is there a specific spot? Is there, um, or is it just generally to get up there? Uh, yeah, actually if, I mean, there are many places I want to go, but one that stands out is there's a, a the most remote volcano in Washington state is Glacier Peak. And the, the approach to that is a very, very long south-facing ridge. And there's a specific place there that it's just a wonderful view of this long, long ridge climbing up to a, the top of a volcano. And there are, uh, and I, I took a picture with a crummy little digital camera and I really want to go back and to that spot and wait for good conditions. Is this mountaineering like going up the Matterhorn kind of mountaineering where you're hanging out over the, the well, we use ropes, abyss. um, we use ropes and all that, but it, it doesn't quite a bit of it. You can do without your hands. I mean, it's not, it's not all dramatic and, uh, it's not like all like the movies, but yeah, it involves using ropes and safety okay. procedures and ice okay. axes and things like that yeah so um it would would this be something that you would take the mercury up for uh since it's lightweight yeah. or are you thinking yeah. like a field camera no i think the the mercury is going to be the the ideal camera for a lot of that although that lightweight field camera if i can kind of get it working the way i want it to that would be another good option but i don't i'm not super i don't feel like having movements and all that is that big a thing for me it's more getting the right lens and the right uh film format uh in a lightweight package yeah okay so uh the the whole inspiration on this was a um today uh when we went to take my wife's car to get gas in it um we pass a place where they're building a bridge for a bike path and it's uh probably about 150 yards off the road. And I so want to go down there and just take pictures of of the bridge. I mean, and, you know, and it may be nothing when I get there. But it's just, I've wanted to do, they've been building this bridge for a year. And, you know, it's it's a bike path. You know, it doesn't have priority. Um, and, uh, and I've just, uh, I, I just passed it today and I thought, oh, that would be a good question to ask Nick. So, uh, you know, and, uh, and there's a little bit of philosophy. Let's talk about the little bit of philosophy of, uh, I have, um, I, you know, you've heard the saying, of course, uh, take nothing but photographs, leave nothing but footprints. Mm -hmm. Um, 
My deal is, uh, I, I have the motto, uh, take nothing but photographs, leave nothing but photographs. And with the idea of if you go to any location and exhaust the photographic possibilities at that location, it essentially will never exist again as a photographic location. So I kind of... Yeah, that's a that's a theoretical idea, but I can't imagine it ever being a reality. Oh, uh... I don't know. No place, no place is ever the same when you go back. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's something there, but you know, there's certain, you know, there's certain things that I've photographed, you know. Yeah, yeah, twelve you're dozen it, times, sure. right, right, right. So anyway, that's that's the idea: is that you never, I never want to get to the point where I am sick of taking photographs of that, and mm-hmm. I just, you know, it's like, oh, look at that. Oh, yeah, I've already done that, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and nothing, nothing's going to be new there. So. Um, what do you say we start the Homemade Camera Podcast? Yeah. So this is a, this uh, episode is going to be about something that sort of a it's sort of an obsession of mine it's the idea of a universal camera and it's it's a theoretical idea there really actually is no such thing but there are cameras which are very flexible and can be reconfigured to do all sorts of different jobs so it's a sort of a swiss army knife idea or i don't know modular parts that can be exchanged the idea of a camera that can do a lot of different things and there are reasons that's useful um, it might save you money, you know, it might, because you don't maybe need to buy as many different components as if you had several different systems. It can make a camera more useful if you go to a remote place because you can reconfigure it on the spot to do more different kinds of things. Um, and it's just sort of cool. Um, but the idea is to make camera systems that will do as many different kinds of things as you need them to do as opposed to having specialized cameras and there's advantages to that Um, you could maybe argue in some cases that a camera that's perfect for a certain use is worth it even if it can't do anything else so that would be the opposite of a universal camera Um, and of course in real life you end up with some of each um, because there are some things that are, are just asking too much of one camera you know uh, but for a lot of what I do, I use cameras that come close to being universal. So, so in the past, there have been a lot of these cameras built, and there are a few still being built. Um, so, uh, what are some of the ones that are, have been made in the past? We've um... well, the first thing that comes to mind for me are large format cameras. So, you have. Uh, camera that can take a different film backs for either roll film or sheet film and then some focusing mechanism in the middle usually bellows and uh, rack and pinion or something like that and then on the front uh, lens boards that can theoretically take just about any lens um, and then specifically because it's just a board that you can have different size holes in and screw on different attachments they're very very simple um, but that's their strength because both ends of the camera can be reconfigured to take a lot of different films or a lot of different lenses. So it, um, I think that that's kind of the essential factor for a universal camera. 
it, almost, uh, well, almost every SLR out there is an interchangeable lens, uh, SLR and, and many range finders, uh, and medium format cameras are able to swap out the lenses. So the big but thing to me, usually, yeah, the big thing they're to usually... me is the other end. It is the ability to swap out different film formats sure. that is, is more uh, down the line of making it universal. Right. And a lot of the more professional medium format cameras allow you to change the film back. Um, sure. Sometimes for, uh, or format, they, they allow but also you... just for, or just, or just for the convenience of more than one film. So you might have like a Hasselblad is always a six by six square for the most part. I think they do have some 35 millimeter back for it, but it's not anything that anyone paid much attention to or a Rolleiflex, which has six by six um, and a 35 millimeter option. But there are some things like that, but I still also want to comment that just because there are interchangeable lenses doesn't to me that isn't quite enough to make it fully universal because usually they're designed to only take one mount and occasionally you can adapt other mounts with an adapter but only if uh the flange distance is right the flange distance works or you're you know you can put up with some extra glass to to uh change the uh it'll and and it will change the field of view and you know there's there's a lot of limits to interchanging lenses on any SLR uh, that make it fall short of universal in my in my estimation. But on the other hand, with that limitation comes the possibility of a bigger range of focal lengths. So so it's a trade off. Okay, so uh, so the large and medium format are large format especially, but those medium format cameras that uh, can either do uh different uh frame sizes um or yeah like yeah like let's think of an example of one that has a pretty big range like the mamiya press can take everything from six four five up to six by nine that's a pretty big range for and and it's interchangeable lens camera but it's an obscure mount and they only made seven different really seven different focal lengths for that camera yeah so and it's ugly. You know, that's a limitation. And it's ugly. Oh, no. It's ugly like a Volvo. Yes. You, you've already said it. Ugly, ugly like a 1970 <laughs> Volvo. So, well, yeah. I used to have a 1970 Volvo, and I now have a Mamiya Press <laughs> So camera, you're consistent. So. You're consistent with your with your uh, penchant for ugly mechanical well, let's just, devices. Let's say homely. Let's homely. say homely. Let's All say right. not attractive. Okay, we can do that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Um, now there was there was also uh, a set of uh, cameras that that were really I guess nineteen eighties cameras, and um, those are uh, like specifically the Horseman cameras that were six yes. by nine, and, and those are really pretty universal. Yeah, yeah. So so essentially, it's a mini field camera, um, right? And mm-hmm. and you know some of them would fold up, some of them wouldn't. Um, and Lin, Linhoff made some too. And, okay. And yeah. yeah, and those, oh, and, oh, what's the, what's the big snooty company, uh, that made those? I, I can't think of, um, uh, yeah, well, okay. So Alpa. Uh, well, Alpa certainly did. In fact, Alpa makes or did make, um, 
a, a camera that um, uh, is like a rigid body and yeah, use those yeah. lenses and, that was and there's uh, that there's was still nice. stuff being made yeah there's still stuff being made under the alpha name uh, sure that's fairly universal yeah uh a- anyway so for some reason that my brain went off on that and i know that even today um you know like shen hao out of china makes mm-hmm. a six by nine back um mm-hmm. for for their cameras so uh, and they're a thousand bucks so just for the bag. Wow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, and Cambo makes a whole lot of that stuff. Right, Again, right. high, pr- high prices, but a surprising variety. It goes way beyond the standard 4x5 view cameras. They make sure. all sorts of interesting stuff. Sure. Now, um, part of the deal with the universal camera is, uh, to me, is that, that I, I just feel like it needs to be able to be used in a lot of situations. So... With these cameras that we've talked about so far, in order to get the large, l- larger end of the film format, they're kind of sacrificing portability, lightness, mm-hmm. uh, maneuverability, that mm-hmm. type of thing. Um, and so, uh, so I, I think that they're, you know, uh, you know, it comes down to you know, jack of all trades, master of none. Uh, kind of thing where it's just yeah. it's uh it's kind of here I'll, I'll i'll insult everybody with this one shot it's kind of the zoom lens of the camera format right where it does yeah. a lot of things really well but it does nothing excellently sure okay and that's and the other group of cameras that falls in that category is the press cameras and we've, we've already mentioned Mamiya Press, but, you know, and there's all the graph lock. And in fact, the press cameras in a way, like sort of established the modern universal because of the graph lock standard is what all large format cameras use now. And that's why we can exchange film backs between all these uh, different cameras that exist. And it was because of the needs of the press to have cameras that you could have a bunch of different film backs and everything should should swap around without any trouble and you know it it it's in the other thing about those is those cameras were meant to be used fairly with some speed and so they often also have multiple different focusing methods built into one camera where you have the choice of ground glass uh range finder coupled range finder or a viewfinder so all three of those methods were often built in or very or, often two viewfinders or the match light uh match uh where you um uh for night you have two beams that come out and you just you make the two beams mm-hmm. um you know right. the dam buster concept um if you remember Yeah so that now movie. we're like up to like about five or six different ways to frame yeah. and, and and uh focus the camera which allowed it to be used in more different circumstances um and that's still something that you know, I, I would like that kind of flexibility fairly. Sure. I, I appreciate that kind of flexibility. I don't need, and, I don't need to have a camera that just works one way. And, and, and the, you know, for instance, and another one, the Roloflex had often three different ways to look, you know, to focus and, and frame with a, with a sports finder, the uh, straight looking down through the, through the taking or the, uh, Focusing lens and mm-hmm. sometimes a second um, uh, sort of way to set that up. 
one of the things about the the Graflex um, is that it also had two different shutter mechanisms. It had yeah. the curtain shutter at the back, and then, on the speed graphic, yeah, right. And then it had the um, the leaf, leaf shutter in the lens. Now, right. I, I I'm not sure what was there an advantage to that. There were two advantages. I mean, the, the there was the practicality of you could it meant you could use lenses that didn't have a shutter, which was just convenient. But but their practical reason really was that you know leaf shutters can sync with your flash at any speed, so they make the flash much more effective and they're quiet. Uh, but the focal plane shutter was capable of a higher speed, so if you needed to stop action, um, it you know when they first started coming out it was a pretty big difference. So, you know, the typical leaf shutter only went to like 250th. Uh, and then the, the speed graphic went to a thousandth of a second. And that's a, you know, significant difference if you're shooting automobile racing or whatever, you know. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> or or hurts races and, at the end. Right. And, yeah, and I think there might have been, I mean, I think those are the, that's the main thing. But those are significant advantages. Um, you've got, most, it's rare to find that now. There are occasionally some of the medium format professional cameras had, what they usually did is they'd have an in-camera focal plane shutter, and then some lenses offered a leaf shutter for mm-hmm. high-speed flash sync or, you know, other uses. Okay. Um, so uh, we also, we've, what, what about the uh, mirrorless cameras? Um that can mm. can uh you know adapt essentially any lens to them yeah so the main the primary advantage of mirrorless from that point of view from the point of view being universal is that they have incredibly short flange back distances which means there's room to insert an adapter for almost any lens made for any other camera system because there's almost all other cameras have a longer flange back distance. So that extra space makes room for the adapter. There's other advantages. The fact that you're focusing by looking directly at the sensor with a a electronic viewfinder, it really is actually a help of doing manual focus. So for instance, if you're look, if you're working with a slow lens, you know, looking at ground glass can be really hard to see in, in dim light, but with an electronic viewfinder looking through the same lens, you can, basically turn up the, you know, brighten the viewfinder and see perfectly clearly, even when it's dark out. And that is a big help. Um, and there's, there's digital focusing aids and all sorts of stuff, but in general, they are superb for using a huge variety of lenses. The down, you know, the disadvantage is that they typically have fairly small sensors. So they're not always going to give you the field of view you want with a given lens. Um, you know, very often, lenses that we want to use are designed for much bigger formats like six by six or six by nine or four by five. And, and that's disappointing when you're just getting a tiny little, uh, sensors patch out of that, you know, big image. Yeah. And, uh, I was listening to the, uh, classic lenses podcast, uh, the other day and there were, um, aid was on from uh sunny 16 podcast. And, uh, they were talking about the, uh, the whole idea that if you, you know, uh, say for an APS-C size sensor, 35 millimeter is about, uh, it's, it's right in the normal range. But if you take a 35 millimeter camera or 35 millimeter lens that was designed for, um, a, uh, designed for a full frame 
camera. It's not like that's yeah. an immediately, tra- you know, uh, translatable. The optics in there are to bend that light in, in a certain way um, to get that wider field of view. And I'll let you and Ethan duke it yeah, out about so, the wild, wide field of view. So usually, though, if you're cropping from a lens that is designed for a bigger image circle like that, Usually that's all an advantage, period, because usually the best You're getting the sweet performance spot, right? of any lens is in the middle. So yeah. that that's not so much of a problem. Um, but it's it's but, the bending in the light is done for the wider view as opposed to... Uh, yes, yeah. yes. And the other thing that what happens from a practical point of view is that lenses made for bigger cameras are not made in the really short focal lengths you need to get a wide angle of view with a small sensor. Sure. So, you know, you, you know, the widest common SLR lens that you just find when you go out and look in thrift stores is like maybe 24 or if you're lucky, 20 millimeters. Mm-hmm. And that's not very wide on APS-C. That's, you know, that's just a slightly wide lens. Sure. You know, so if you want a lot of, you know, really wide angle lens, it's pretty hard to find anything from from camera designed for cameras with bigger sensors from the historical just, yeah. uh, uh, catalog, yeah, shall we say? Sure, because it's it's just not practical. I mean, no one's going to use that you know eight millimeter lens on a large format camera. This would be insane, right? So, <laughs> I mean, even pinholes are limited. I think pinholes can't go beyond a field of view angle of view of like 120 degrees. Um, I mean, they're just limits. There are physical limits. Okay. Um, and, and I'm not, uh, for some reason I was thinking that you could go wider than that, but that, but no, that's not much wider because yeah. the, of, dif- because of the, the, you get this, the vignetting and diffraction just builds up to the point where it's right. It's, right. It's defeating the, the it, so imagine the light trying to go at a steep angle through a tiny hole and it's going to hit one edge of the hole on the way in and the other edge on the way out. And, right. you know, it's going to make a, make a mess of your, uh, straight and, lines of, of light. And when we get to um, uh, the end, when we talk about what we've been working on uh, over the week, I'll talk about how uh, I put a too small pinhole on my little pinhole camera that I've been working on. But uh, but we will get oh, yeah. there. So, okay. Um, t- you know, you're the one who knows the Mercury. So um, that one is designed specifically as your universal camera. Uh, where yeah. everything yeah. clamps to everything else. So, uh, you want to go over that, or do you think we've covered? Yeah. That? So, yeah. so what? No, I mean, I'll just in a nutshell. The Mercury is coming as close as you can to a true universal, in that, in terms of the most combinations of film backs and lenses. So you can set them up to do to work with thirty five millimeter all the way up at this stage to five by seven. Um, but you know, you could easily keep going with a little more designing and get bigger and bigger. But right now the range is 35 millimeter format to five by seven. That's a, that's a big range of film sizes. And they also, you can also mount, uh, digital backs on them too, you know, so it's not only film and because they are made of, there are all these different combinations of parts. You can use extremely wide angle lenses because you can make the camera very, very compact front to back. Um, they work with a wide variety of, um, viewfinders, rangefinders, all sorts of attachments that are out there, flash, whatever. The places where they, 
don't offer any options at the moment. I mean, you could keep designing components, right? But at the moment, there is no uh, bellows unit for it. Um, all the focusing is done with helicals. There is no uh, single lens reflex system so, to use so with it. Let's step back to the bellows. Let's step back to the bellows. The mm-hmm. the advantage of bellows is movement, right? So yeah, and come and it and compresses really small. So you can also make a very small camera. Oh yeah, yeah. Up. Or you could use right. a very short focal distance. Um, it allows things to fold up small. Right? Okay. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. So so you're thinking of transportability uh, for movements. Is there not? Um, I'm just thinking a tilt shift option. Yeah, it's right. Exactly. Does so, some of so that. bellows is yeah no a bellows is just one way to get movements, and then right. think about uh, think about some pinhole cameras where they have multiple pinholes. So you instead of having uh, right. movements, you have a lens that's up high and a lens that's down low and a lens that's in the middle, and it gives you the same essentially the same adjustment as movements do. And yeah, a tilt shift lens could come close to this performance of bellows in allowing you to alter the relationship between the the film and the lens but you're right it doesn't have as many configurations um so that's another aspect of universal that we haven't really talked about but different ways to manipulate the relationship between the lens and the film and that the easiest way to get a lot of flexibility is with bellows yeah okay um and uh so what else is okay let's let's step back a little bit about the mercury the mercury is specifically the material is 3d printed uh abs am i right is it abs yeah right Mm -hmm. um and and also bits of hardware so the little bolts and screws and you know Sure. Uh, p- parts from other cameras and, you know, yeah. <laughs> um, the, so, um, is there anything within that, um, that you think, okay, so maybe this is, this is built to be light. This is nice. That adds to its universal appeal, but is there anything that's too light on it? Is there anything that you feel like, you know, if you throw that in your backpack going up the side of the Matterhorn, uh, or, yeah. or the volcano that right. I forget the name of the snowy volcano yeah. or something like that. Um, so the way, so the way that works is that the way that they are currently designed, they are easy to reconfigure in lots of different ways. But yes, if you mistreat them, they're not as strong as some other cameras. Okay. You could easily reinforce them to get over that. And, but you, most of the ways of reinforcing them would also make them heavier or less flexible i mean sure. it, the simplest version you could just glue the thing together permanently and then it would be really strong but you know oh, you'd okay have a, you'd have a single use camera then yeah so it, it, you know the, and it's also something that's evolving like it would be because it's an open it's an open what's it called when anyone can work with it uh open source open source because yes. it's open source it's perfectly possible to design more robust parts for it and you know go forward so it's the thing that's there are things missing from the system but you could easily introduce them to it it's it's not like a product that you you know you're just limited to what the Mm -hmm. factory makes you're meant to participate right basically it's i'm using it almost as a template for 
developing my own parts. Right. And uh, it's a it's really a great way to play with parts and so forth. And then when you get something you really like, you can reinforce it and just use it that way. And, okay. Um, so, okay. Kind of, kind of what we go through when we build a new camera. We make two or three crummy ones, and then we finally figure out what we want and do yeah. a good job. Yeah. And, in fact, I, I'm uh... – I've I'm deep into redesigning the 63 and I think that it's going to work considerably better. And it is the redesign is all about usability. Uh, it is mm-hmm. all about the shooting experience. So uh, oh, we'll we'll talk about that in in some future episodes uh, as I as I flesh it out and then run through a, a couple of iterations. So uh, one of the things I was thinking about when we talked about the uh the idea of the universal camera was uh i was thinking back to those cameras those point and shoot cameras in the 80s that had and maybe maybe the early 90s that had the 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 little lever you could switch and it would go to panorama mode and you know and it was just curtains it just cropped your image but but then that was built in to the APS cameras. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there, I forget what the settings were because I only really, I only had one APS camera in all my life and I shot one roll on it. I found it, uh, I was in North Carolina on vacation. I found it for $7 in a, in an antique store and I thought, oh, well, I can flip that on eBay. And it had, it was a full kit with a, with a roll of film. And I shot the roll of film just to make sure that everything was good and to experience the camera. And then I flipped it on eBay. But um, it had a wide, the wide panorama. And then it had the standard three by two frame. And then I think it also had like a frame size that mimicked the 35. Am I right? I don't know. Um, And did you never have an APS camera? No, I completely skipped. I went from a 1970s camera to a right to a, a 2000 something camera. I I really missed that whole okay. All the sophisticated film cameras went right by me. I've worked my way up now almost to 1980. I have a couple cameras that are like starting to be sophisticated, right? And it's kind of fun. Uh, but I no, I've never used any of that. Yeah. By the way, I have a theory, and this this theory goes out to. Uh... Mike Gutterman from the Negative Positives. Um, so uh, this is the theory that APS was as much about putting um, mom and pop camera uh, shops out of business as anything else. Because when APS came out, it was the thing. You had to gear up for it. And one of the things that you had to do was you had to buy one of the machines from Kodak to process it. And I, the, the companies that leveraged what the next thing was, um, and I'll, I'll bet you some of them, that was a majority or a a large portion of the debt that they went, you know, were under. Um, and and it was unfortunate. It really was unfortunate because it is not a bad camera system. It is a smart camera system, um, and it, it recorded all of your data for every image. It recorded how it was shot, so how it could be printed. So mm-hmm. you know, I mean, that was that was some sophisticated stuff, and it just 
came too late, you know, mm-hmm. or, or, you know, uh, it came too early cause you know, it was all washed away in, um, uh, in the digital revolution, uh, that came on. So, uh, okay. So are there any other, you know, I, I would consider that the APS system a semi universal in that right. it offered, it offered what almost no other camera would offer. And that is the ability to switch the format of the film. You know, right. it, it all used APS film, well, yeah, but it used it in different ways. Sure. But then that's, all the interchangeable back cameras offer the same thing. Right. Uh, yeah. But the interchangeable back cameras at that point were, I mean, I know we're not limiting to just consumer, but the interchangeable back cameras were $3,000 and an APS oh, sure. was twenty nine ninety five, and you could get right. it in a blister pack at Walgreens, you know? Okay. But so, and now I'm going to, I'm going to still contradict you because if you go back into early 20th century, there okay. were actually quite often uh, a lot of the tourist cameras gave the option of either six four five or six by nine. Yes, that was very common, and you yes. you would change a mask. And I think there was even one or two that you could do mid roll changes. Okay, um, that was rare, but so the multiple format cameras have been around for a long time. I mean, I have these old books of exotic cameras from yesteryear that I keep finding stuff in there that you know was invented a right. hundred years before we even realized it you know was something you could do so yeah and that's uh, there's always there's always a, a, exceptions to those yeah and uh and so so there we'll take those like um the bessa that uh i the old bessa the original voigtlander bessa six by nine uh that has the six four five mask in it is mm-hmm. uh, was my first um franken camera and right. uh and that and that, yeah, absolutely. So we'll we'll call those semi-universal. Um, yeah, exactly. Well, I don't think there really is a true universal. There are things that are that are more universal and things that are less universal. But uh, yeah, because even the mercury, uh, even though you could, in theory, make components that would allow it to have you know bellows and movements and all that stuff. There are other limits on it because it's a lightweight plastic camera with all these parts that stick together, kind of like, you know, Lego parts. You can't really do very long focal lengths with it because it just gets too rickety and, you know, it's not set up for that. Now, it'd be possible to figure out a way to do it, of course, but um, it would it would stop being worth the trouble at some point And, you know, you would want a different camera for a really long lens. I mean, the same thing's true even with really long lenses on a big view camera. You still end up needing special props to keep the bellows from sagging into the view. And, you know, there's always a limit to what's practical. A universal camera has features, uh, and any camera has features because, uh, seriously, a camera is a light tight box with a lensing element and a recording element and right, sensor. Yeah, a sensor or film. Um, and then everything else is a feature. So 
What are the features that you see really as um, important in a universal camera? Well, there, I mean, so they're the same things that are important in any camera, but faced with the extra problems you get by making a camera very versatile, um, they take on a different significance. So for instance, mobility or portability is something that really matters a lot to a lot of people. Yes. Uh, and you're going to sacrifice some of that because a purpose-built camera that can only do one thing is usually it's possible to make it as small as that particular design allows. But if it's got to be designed so that it can also take various other kinds of attachments, bigger lenses, bigger film back, then that means the camera ends up getting bulkier and heavier and more complex than it would need to be for that specific use. So you're going to sacrifice some mobility uh, with a universal camera. And in a way, that sort of explains the limits of the Mercury because that camera was designed to stress mobility and flexibility. At And what they sacrifice is, you know, extra heavy-duty build. So, sure. So, the you know, there's no way to use it with bellows at present, um, but that's partly why it's extra special because there's tons of cameras around with bellows and they're all kind of big kind of awkward and And you can take the same lens you can take the same lens and the same film back and stick them together with a little piece of plastic you know that says mercury on it and now it's a lightweight kind of something you could take out in the mountains or take out on the street and not be weighed down by it i think that there's also uh, a great advantage in that system in that um, part of the flexibility is, uh, replacement parts. Um, yeah. you know, uh, you're not going to have to gut an existing camera in order mm-hmm. to fix your camera. Uh, you can just get some replacement parts. Um, yep. so, and if you, and it is just a piece of plastic. So if you do something really stupid and, you know, fall down in the mountain, right. with it, it's, it's not that big a loss. Yeah. So, okay, so, uh, flexible, or, um, uh, the, the portability is certainly a factor, uh, and the mobility is still a, is a factor, but I think that the key factor, the key factor in all of this is flexibility, right? It is yeah. the ability to swap. So, right. um, and it's the ability to not have to do it in a dark bag, and not have to do it in, you know, with mechanics tools, um, that type of thing, yep. right? Mm-hmm. So right. in in field format changes. Um, so yep. you're talking right. uh, putting or, on a or, different back, right? Or film changes. So if you want to shoot both black and white in color, you don't have to run out the roll. You can just switch the backs, right? Um, right. Th- those 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 are really practical advantages of I'm, a more universal system. I'm going to stop you on that one because I have. Um, I have a Bronica with, uh, interchangeable backs and I had an RB67. That was actually the RB67 was my first film camera when I got back into film photography and, uh, I had different backs. In fact, when I was building out my RB67 system, I bought more backs than I needed. Um, mm-hmm. and the ability to switch from color to black and white, from slow film to fast film, um, it all sounds good. Um, but you know, 
I almost never did it. So I'm going to ask you, because you have some interchangeable back cameras, how often do you do that? Uh, I actually do it more and more all the time. And and it's not just, I actually, more often than not, I mean, that's something I have done where I've taken a couple film backs with different films in them out into the field. And you're right, it's not necessarily that big a deal. Because usually you're going to be oriented towards whatever the light is asking you to use. Sure. And I usually shoot color, so I'm usually not carrying a black and white in one and color in the other. But here's what I do often do. I'll load a film into a film holder, that I and it's a film I want to shoot. I will use it on different cameras. So okay. I'll take that same roll of film, and I'll shoot with one camera, and then I'll put it on a completely different camera and shoot with that. And that's really valuable to me because... Maybe I just want to take a few different pictures of some subject and I really want to, you know, use completely different lenses and systems. I don't have to start two two separate rolls of film. I can just take that back and okay. swap it around. So so it, I do find that quite useful. Okay. And I'll also resist, it helps me resist that tendency to just shoot out a roll to be done, you know, and take some stupid pictures that you don't really, you know, it's just a waste. Right. Right. Um, you know, uh, yeah. Um, and, but, uh, although I've, oh, you know, uh, I, 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 we were listening to something. Uh, I think it was from Sunny 16, and I think that you picked up on it. The idea of you get a bunch of pictures of the front door of the camera shop yeah, um, right. when you're taking, taking the camera in. You know... You can rewind mid-roll, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, but you're still wasting the film. I mean, sure, sure. You know, but and, you know, and, and if you, if you're so so, say I have a roll in the roll of flex. You know, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna rewind it halfway through and then like stuff it in a different camera and then advance it in the dark that amount and right. hope it works. I mean, I'm just not gonna go through all that, you know. But if, but if I have my six by six roll film back and. I can switch it from one camera to another to right. use a different a different lens or whatever. Um, it it makes it makes flexibility easier. Let's put it that way. So that's actually so instead of being forced to make one camera take every lens in the world, you can just move that film back from one camera to another. And, and that's with the uh, um, graph lock back, right? You're talking about graph right. lock backs. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And yeah. yeah, okay. And I can see that. I can uh, I can definitely see that. Um, and in fact, you can move it from a pinhole camera to uh, uh yes, yeah, because yeah, you and, have and I one. and I'm doing that too as well, right? Um, and I yeah, I think that's uh, super okay. useful. And those film holders are they're not l- ultra light either. So let's say I'm going into the mountains and I want to bring you know a lightweight mercury with a light lens on it and a pinhole camera. I don't necessarily want to pack two or three film holders with me because they weigh something too. Right. Um, so it, it's just a nut. So, so when, when you pack for mountaineering, you always, you're always trying to keep the weight down. Um, that's a really big deal. And if you can, if you can carry three cameras and one film holder, you know, that's going to save a bunch of weight overall Sure. as, as compared to three, you know, big, large format or medium format system. So I, I, I don't yeah. know. I, I, yeah, I think there's some strong advantages to that. I think I'm more excited about interchangeable film backs than I am about interchangeable lenses even. Yeah. And, and there's something, there's something about that. Generally, 
when I go out and shoot, um, I, I, when I leave the car, if I've, if I brought a bag that has several different photographic options, when I leave the car, I take one camera with one lens because I hate juggling out mm-hmm. in the field. So I, yeah, I can, I can follow that. If you, you know, if you're, you know, the backpack is the equivalent to the car, um, then yeah, I, I, I can see where, you know, if you're, you're going to have time to stop, put stuff down, swap it out. That makes perfect sense. And that camera that you just made, uh, that you sent to me, it, that's a little yeah. pinhole camera that just slips on the front of a roll film holder. I think that's a brilliant idea. And I think that th- that's a lightweight, simple thing. You could have two or three of those, maybe one with a glass lens, one with a pinhole, whatever, right. and just pop them on your film holder. You could have quite the interchangeable, interchangeable camera. <laughs> Instead of interchangeable lens. Right. It's actually a really, really good idea because it allows that whole component to be very simple. And that saves weight and complexity. And I don't know. I think that's a really ingenious solution. Yeah. And I I just need to redesign it so it fits the different backs better. Yeah. Uh, I designed it for, for one back and it didn't seem to fit other backs as well so well yeah you made you made it fit really snug um and it, ter- it turns out they don't actually need that for light tightness so you might as well make it a little sloppy so it'll fit more different right film holders. right yeah. and and what we're talking about is the 67 uh camera that it, it, he's got the pinhole version of the 67 um and it's just a a piece of plastic that's made to fit on an existing back uh easily well, so, so what, well, what we're talking about here is a, a variation on the principle that most, we tend to think of system cameras as like a body that you can put different lenses on and, end a, or a body or, that you, a body that you buy that is the core of the system. Right. right. And then you, and then they make a whole bunch of lenses that go to one end and they might make a bunch of different film backs that go on the other end. And there might be optional viewfinders and all sorts of, uh, optional attachments but it's you basically you're you're buying their body it's like when you when you buy a you know a shaver and then you've got to buy their blades forever that's the way we tend to think of universality but what's brilliant about your 67 design is it's it's it opens up this other way of thinking about it okay i'm going to go out with a roll film holder and have different lightweight simple specialized cameras that attach to it that's a really interesting that is a good uh, way different to way to about think it. about it. Yeah, it's. I think it's. Uh, I think it's actually kind of cool. And the other kind of missing link in this is is shutter. So, if we had a shutter that you could snap onto your roll film back, right, um, and then we could that use would any open glass. things up. Really open things up. You know, yeah. then like you might be able to steal the lens off your regular, you know, camera that you always take. Like, say you have your favorite rangefinder you always want with you. Well, maybe you could stick that lens on this, you know, this other thing or something. So I don't know. It's a, it's an interesting. Uh, I think it's a really an idea worth expanding. So say say we're in ready to. 
to start designing a universal camera. Um, what what do we want to? Uh, what concepts do we want to start with? What do we want to include? Yeah, well, I mean, hey, that was a this is, this that was a key for that was a cue for you to start. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, so there's all these trade-offs we've been discussing. So we, we talked about, uh, the way that the Mercury made its, they, the designer of the Mercury, um, Zach, oh, last Zach, I'm drawing a blank. Yeah. Zach designed the Mercury and he really stressed this idea of portability, uh, simplicity, very appealing set of, uh, characteristics to stress um and they're very different than the than the large format universal systems which were you know tended to be bulky heavy comp you know not not necessarily complicated to in construction or design but complicated to use you know they were they required a lot of thought and knowledge to operate uh, compared to a, a more simple fixed system where you're just adjusting the focus and uh, framing you know so that you do kind of have to start with a notion of what your trade-offs are going to be or what you're going to emphasize since you're never going to get something that does everything, everything for real. So maybe you want to stress the ability to have a lot of different film sizes, or maybe you want to stress the ability to take a lot of lenses, or maybe you want to stress, um, a camera that can be handled a lot of different ways, like say the press camera, which you can use as a rangefinder or as a as a ground glass or as a viewfinder. Like it's that one stressing the um, flexibility in the way you handle the camera, whereas you may not actually change the lens very often, for instance. So sure. So what what you, do you you just have to decide what your most important uh, uh, where you want to be most flexible. And, okay, so let's let's do it personally. Um, mm-hmm. Where what do you want to have the most of? Lenses, film formats, backs, uh, or methods of focus, methods of shooting like uh, w- with uh, flexible bodies. Um, what is it? What is it that you yeah. want the most of? I think that very often. I like the idea of camera that you can use different ways. So that's kind of a press camera mentality that it's, you have the option of using it on a tripod with ground glass and tedious, slow, kind of get it just right. But the same camera you could also use, you know, either with a rangefinder or with scale focus and a viewfinder so that you can also shoot kind of fast and easy with it. Those are like that flexibility matters a lot to me. Um, I like that. Uh, I also like being able to use different film formats. That's something that I care about. Or having interchangeable film back, at least. Sure. I care about that. Lenses, I mean, it's I, I, it's nice to have a few choices with a camera, right? Maybe two or three. But I don't feel like I need any given camera to be able to take every focal length in the world. Like, I don't. That isn't so important to me. Because right. a, a camera that can do that usually gets so limited in other ways that I'm willing to give that up and I'm willing to have two or three different types of camera that can handle, say, you know, I don't need 
a really long telephoto lens on a view camera. Like, I just don't need that. I'm never going to use it, you know? So that's not something I need something with a big piece of film to do. Um, Something with, you know, that's where I'm willing to accept the limitations of a smaller piece of film or whatever. Um, Actually, very often what I'll do is use uh, an APS-C digital camera because then you get, you know, even more reach for the for the given sensor size the one thing that i think that i would work for the most and i'm just i I looked at a couple of things on this uh in this area of uh of our outline and i've just looked at two of the things and i completely switched my views so Mm -hmm. um one of them is uh we we talked about a maximum number of different film formats. So we have listed 110, 126, 120, 135, 4x5, 5x7, 8x10, APS. So that was mm-hmm. just the list that I ran out, you know. And that, of course, ignores 616, anything 70 millimeter, you know, that type of thing. Sure. However, the thing that I want is... I don't need to have the different film formats. I need to be able to shoot different formats on a single roll, on a single film. So, mm-hmm. you know, it's like what we talked about with uh, everything from 6.45 to 6 by 9 on 120. Well, why not 5 by 7 By the way, when you were talking about the Mercury going up to 5 by 7 I took out a ruler and look, 5 by 7 is 18 millimeter, 18 centimeters. So that means that you could do the, you know, the six by 17 on a five by seven kind of, uh, format. So I just want to, but you know, I want there to be on say a, a one thirty five camera, the ability to shoot square, shoot three to two, um, shoot the traditional 35 is 35 3 to 2. Anyway, there's that there's that um, you know, uh, And why not why not be able to go all the way up to 2 to 6 like an X-pan? Right. No, well, 2 to 6 is actually it, it that's not even uh an X-pan is 24 by uh 65. Um right. so that's um yeah. You know, so that's a little bit shorter. That's two and that, a but... half times, right? Right. Right. So, um, you know, so that's really what I want to do for the universality. Um, mm-hmm. I want to be able to, uh, to get there, um, on, um, I, I, that, so, that's, so, yeah. so what you need is you need a lens with a big enough image circle for your largest, uh, the largest of your formats. And then you need a way to switch masks. And you need a way to adjust the advance. So that was an idea we talked about on an earlier episode. Wouldn't it be fun to have a film advance that you could change shot to shot? Right. So that, and that's a really, I mean, the old way was was just a knob and you peered through a window. So that is essentially a way to make a, a, but the problem is you're limited to what the window shows. Well, Um, and you're limited to working with backing paper. Um, and you're, yeah, right. So, uh, so for 135, then, you know, that's too much of a pain in the neck. So we, we need to come up with an advance that you can change how far it goes on a stroke, on a, on a stroke. Yeah. 
Uh, and that's, um, yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the so Panamicron a little bands. bit later on. But mm-hmm. that, uh, that's one of the things that he did very well, uh, on that was getting that. So, um, uh, the other thing that I was thinking, and this is, this is one of the reasons why we do this show. Um, I was just listening back and I, I'm going to mention it a little bit later on. I was listening back to some, the back catalog of, uh, Sunny 16 podcast today. And I was out working in the yard and, and it was uh, Hamish Gill and his dirty mouth, uh, episode. This is what he said. And, and this is the experience that I'm having. The experience that I'm having is when I sit down and write something, that's when it becomes real to my head. Um, you know, that's a paraphrase, but that was, that was one of the things that he said. So I'm just sitting here, Mm -hmm. uh, listening to Nick talk and I see multiple lenses, coverage for maximum and flange distance. If we build the, okay. So that 35 millimeter camera that I was just talking about, if it has a super short flange distance, but short enough to get at least a full Mm -hmm. by uh, full, full by frame, uh, a full frame, uh, 35 millimeter in there, we can start working that adapter system that, so if, if we get, say, a flange focal distance of the Sony 7, whatever, A7 R2, uh, latest model. A short, a short, a very short, very short, short, short then, no, the exact same one that they use on that, then we can use all of oh, those Sony adapters. The, ad- the adapters. Yes. But there is a problem. What's that? There is a problem. Be, well, what you want to get that wide field of view is you want a, a lens that throws this big image circle, and that doesn't just... It requires a bigger throw. No, yeah, so, yeah. No, hang on a second. I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. and But, but there I'm, is, I'm there off is on a, a tangent. Workaround. I'm off on a tangent. Okay. So I'm not talking okay. universal. What I'm talking okay. about is a camera for me to build. And mm-hmm. that's... And, but do you want to go above 35 millimeter? No, uh, no, 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 no. Like you, you see, okay, and that was right. what I was saying. You know, it's so, so my X-Pan thing was a monkey wrench and we'll just drop the that. monkey. Yeah. We'll, we'll, drop we'll, that. we'll talk about the monkey later on and monkey, uh, Hamish okay. is the monkey, but, um, <laughs> but we'll, no, we'll talk about that. But, um, but my, my, I, what I'm trying to say is think of this, think of a very short flange focal distance and we could even, you know, take an adapter right. and put a Sony mount on that, um, mm-hmm. on the front of that as a film camera. And I have no way of focusing because it doesn't have a mirror. Oh, jeez. Okay. We went down all that and I've just been no. crushed with my, with my hopes. No, and you dreams. don't have no way of focusing. You don't. Oh, have no yeah. We can focusing. scale focus. You, you'll have, you can scale yeah, focus. Yeah. 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 Right. We just have to scale focus. We'd have to figure that out with each one of the, of the or uh, or, lenses. or 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 twin lens reflex design. That's right. Oh, and that that gets you out of a lot of problems because then you you start to be able to to have a bigger field of view and oh yeah yeah, yeah that works. But but uh, um uh, we're talking scale focusing because every one of those old lenses that I want to use is going to have a um is going to have a, a focusing scale on it right there. 
Yeah, so, so you can you can scale yeah, yeah, focus, yeah. yes. Or you could buy two lenses and yeah, do a twin lens. Yeah, I could lens. do a, tw- a twin lens. Format, you want yeah. me to do a twin lens. That is the that is well, your goal. You're pushing towards <laughs> the twin lens, aren't you? <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. I this is so, the reason yeah. why we do this podcast. It has absolutely nothing to do with informing anyone. It has to do with bouncing ideas off of each other, right? Exactly. Yeah. So, so all the right. audience. But we're but since since we're doing it publicly, anyone else who wants to like yeah grab the table table scraps from our feast here can. That's right. Wait, no, hold on. Copyright, copyright. I'm patenting the idea. Um, yeah, because that's the next <laughs> billion dollar idea is a film camera that can take a Sony mount uh, <laughs> adapter. Oh. Well, so yeah, so look around for the the choice of adapter. Okay. I'm I'm gonna say I'm gonna say maybe think about something like M42. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. So, we can yeah, do all those. Yeah. Okay, so let's get back to um uh so. Really seriously, I, uh, what I was talking about before is the multiple formats, um, single camera, multiple formats on a single frame, a single film size. And what that does is it could be an internal adjustable, you know, it could be just a mask. It could be a drop in mask. That's not a problem at all. Uh, but the idea, uh, but the advantage of this would be, that um mobility uh and and complexity would be reduced no mobility would be increased complexity would be reduced with that so i think that that's where it'd go but um okay so let's uh talk about some of the other things um uh the size and weight versus mobility and storage you've already talked talked about that um the adapters uh, for, for lenses, um, we, I just went on a tangent to talk about that. Although for a universal camera, that could definitely be, uh, a plus, but I think it might be adapters in the larger, um, larger formats. So, uh, adapters yeah. for, right. uh, for medium format lenses to go on on a body yeah i'm starting to use medium format lenses more and more often and as in on 35 millimeter as well as uh on my sort of universal cameras because there are there are some really nice lenses that are relatively inexpensive and so so if you think about it and you know if you shoot one one 35 135 format and you're trying to save money, you know, you, you, and you're looking for a portrait lens. Usually the 85 millimeter lenses are very expensive, um, you know, for the better ones, uh, but you can get 80 millimeter lenses for medium format. And that's just a normal lens and they're really common. So, right. eight, you know, an 80 millimeter for medium format, they're a dime a dozen because they sold one with every camera. So, you can take that lens and stick it on your 35 millimeter and there you go. There's your portrait right. lens. Uh, and it's often a really high quality and you're cropping the sharpest middle of the thing out. And, and you know, they work and, great. And so, the other advantage is you could use movements, um, with that, uh, because that 80 millimeter lens is going to have a large coverage area. Um, so you yes. can use a lot of movements. Right. And, and I'm interested in your 35 millimeter flexible camera partly because i like shooting 35 yeah. and i think that 
I mean, there there one or two people made a 35 millimeter TLR at some point, which is kind of a cool idea. And I'm now starting to shoot this panorama 35 millimeter, and that I think that there's so many lenses for that format as yeah. well that that I'd be I'm kind of starting to fall back into even though I love working with 120 film and I like these big modular cameras, I'm starting to fall back into thinking about designing some more peculiar 35 millimeter format. I think it'd be really fun. Do you have a book? I do. Um, this book is only moderately related to the topic, but it's uh, along the theme of of books of old cameras that give you good ideas for new designs and this particular one and i don't think i've mentioned it before but it's it's part of a it's one of these english series so it's a british publication you know kind of a small little handbook size the hove camera photo books photo spelled with an f o-t-o and this particular one is on Zeiss Icon cameras made between 1926 and 1939. I don't, I may have mentioned it before, but if you go through this book, you will find some really, really interesting and unusual camera designs that were just kind of, you know, available for the general hobbyist in that period in the 20s and 30s. And some of them are really interesting and most of them you could figure out how to build yourself because they're you know they're old school is it uh it's called it's this db tubs is the author and it's a hove camera photo book oh yeah yeah. this one is the zeiss icon cameras 1926 to 1939 but it's a whole series there were lots of oh yeah, yeah yeah i um i just did an amazon search and there's everything you know the canon 420 430 speed lights um so it's a mm-hmm. whole series i see okay mm-hmm. um yeah. this big and the zeiss is a particularly fruitful one because they were they did make some really cool cameras like i'm looking now for instance i open up to the zeiss icon Erminox camera this is a two and a quarter this had two formats two and a quarter by one and three quarter or three and a half by two and a half it took film packs and plates it has a bellows it has a huge lens. It's really fast. It's an f one point eight, which in those days <laughs> was pretty darn sure. fast. <laughs> and it was it was considered to be like the camera used by uh, professional press and theater photographers. Right. It looks um, yeah. like there are some that are being reissued, uh, but most of them are out of print. So. That's right. That's but, a little bit but, unfortunate. You, know, you might be able to find it. Yeah, you'll. I'm sure you can find it. I've I, I've seen several of them. I've run into them. Yeah. Okay. So um, I wanted to talk about. Uh, this is the third show running um, that I've talked about Panamicron, and I think Panamicron is done by a guy named Oscar. I may be wrong. Uh, but I think that the, that Oscar is the guy who does the Panamicron. But if you go to Instagram at yeah, it's P A N O M I C R O N. So and at Panamicron. Okay, so um, 
I don't know. I, I don't know what I said the last time, but Oscar is the designer, uh, the Panamicron, uh, feed. Um, uh, he's the designer of the Onyx body. Now the Onyx body is a 65 by 24, uh, millimeter, uh, film size, film, uh, frame size, which is the same as the X-Pan. And I believe that this is, I mean, that's, you know, the model that he was working on. And, uh, he 3D prints these things and he does it with the SLS 3D printing system, which is, um, uh, you, you got, you can go to YouTube and look up SLS, uh, 3D printing system, but it's, um, it creates a very, very high quality, uh, print and it has some incredible advantages. Um, and I'm not sure how much he takes advantage of those, uh, but it looks really clean. The stuff looks really clean. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and part of the deal is, um, these are made for a, an M65 helical. And, um, what, what I was confused about last week was, uh, that James Irvin or last time I said that James Irvin had decided, designed it. James Irvin had designed a helical for it and had put, uh, Mamaya TLR lens on the end of it. And, uh, so, uh, I was a little bit confused. So he had taken one of these and he had designed a helical for it. And, um, and it was on the Panamicron, um, uh, feed. So I got all confused and stuff like that. But, right, right. um, it is Oscar who's doing them. Yeah. So it looks like, it looks like Oscar Owison. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, would be there. And, yeah. um, okay. So, so that's the first thing. But I wanted to, uh, um, I wanted to also, uh, we, we were talking about, uh, Hamish being the, the monkey in the wrench. Um, Hamish Gill, um, <laughs> who <was> published, <laughs> well, whatever. Anyway, uh, uh, by the way, the U is Nick. Um, uh, you know, okay. So, <laughs> um, no, the, uh, he, uh, okay. So Hamish Gill publishes 35 MMC. You, you guys all know about him. Um, but he, over the weekend, published a picture on Instagram of a, a lens that he had taken apart and, um, it, it was a Bronica 40 millimeter F4 lens that was designed for the ETR system, which is a, a 645 system. And, um, it, uh, so he took it apart, took it out of its plastic housing and it was able to be, um, put back together on either side of a Copal Zero shutter. And we talked about last episode about the different size shutters. Well, this is a Copal Zero shutter. And apparently it had the threads and everything like that. So when, you know, somebody asked him, I think I might have asked him, I said, uh, he said, step one is complete. And I said, well, what's step two with this lens? And the Panamicron is what comes up. Now, I don't know what helical he's going to put it on, but um, the idea of this is that it is uh, a cheaper version. Now, it's not super cheap, but it's a cheaper version of uh, the X-Pan. Now, um, I saw somebody in the feed, uh, and in fact, there's a, a picture on the Panamicron feed 
Um, and the question was, let me see if I can get to it. The question was, how, how much are these? And, uh, the, the reaction was, um, with a lens, it'll be, it'll run you about a thousand. Now I believe that's a thousand euros. So that means that's even more in real American money. But, um, the, but the, the idea is that this is a new system. Now, mm-hmm. um, I, I want to see a video. Uh, I, well, okay. They, there are a couple of videos on Panamicron's site, but I want to see, you know, like the full YouTube review on this. So, or actually maybe the full 35 MMC review, um, on this. So, uh, this I think is really exciting. We, we talked, uh, a little bit. Well, we, we talked a little bit before the start of the show about um the idea that out there right now there are two ends of the spectrum where cameras are still being made one of the one end of the spectrum is with pinhole and we've got some excellent pinhole cameras that are available out there i just in fact this week received my birthday gift from my lovely wife which was a um uh, James Guerin's uh, Reality So Subtle 6x6 six with the two nice. two different um, uh, pinholes. It's got one for uh, just what you were talking about, uh, 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 angle correction. But the um, – so there are lots of really good pinhole cameras being done out there. But then the other end and of you, it – And you can – right. You can still buy ready-made uh, cameras for large and, format. And large format, big. right. You know. Right, field cameras and 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 view cameras for in studio use. And what you're excited is that here's someone working on something that falls between. Right, those. it's right something for a 35 millimeter format and something that you can you know that's light and relatively light and small and uh, yeah, that's sort of the missing piece. And of this. yeah, and um and you know I give them incredible uh, props for doing this. Um, but, uh, but I, I, I'm watching because, um, while I, you know, to, to tell you the truth, I'm, I'm looking at it so that I could say, well, I could do some of that, <laughs> you know, um, sure. you know, and I, I, I don't want to be stealing his, his ideas and his, you know, and his, his tricks or, or take anything from him on this, but I'm just excited about it happening, you know, um, So, uh, so that's, you know, that's what came up and, and I'm, I'm hoping I don't get, uh, uh, you know, uh, an instant message on, uh, Instagram or direct message or whatever they call them on Instagram tomorrow saying, uh, 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 you did, you said something wrong about the, the Onyx. No, 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 no. What's what, no, what we're talking about here though, really is that where there's, we're entering a different kind of. Uh, the, the whole world is entering a different approach to things like manufacturing, where more and more stuff is made in small quantities for specific use yeah. uh, on demand. You know, you don't necessarily have to tool up an entire factory and make 10,000 of something to start selling it. Like, it's more and more practical to make a few, a, a small number of things for a specific purpose and find and find those few people scattered around the world that want it quickly right. and easily. So 
you know, there it's there's a completely different world for marketing and a different world for manufacturing, and it's very well suited to the situation that we're in as film shooters or being, as do-it-yourself camera makers. Being that we have a, a micro-market, right? You have a micro-market, but we also can find pieces and parts from old cameras, but also from these new manufacturers that can be mated together. So this right. is a guy who's making a camera body that matches up, you know, the film that's made by Kodak and the lens that you got from the old camera or even a new lens. I mean, there's a whole lot of manual focus lenses coming out of Asia now that are really high quality, relatively inexpensive, uh, common mounts, you know, brand new lenses. Right. Uh, so there are so many individual components from disparate sources that it is more and more practical to combine together to make a new product. And that's for both for do-it-yourself and for people who want to have a small business. It's really exciting. And it's also in many ways, we're, we're looking at uh, an increase in universality. So it reminds me of the old Russian stuff that was all either M42 or M39. Right. Um, Pentax and and the bunch of uh, Soviet manufacturers and all these other people for a long time made things that were interchangeable. And then on the other side of that were camera companies that were trying to keep you stuck with just what they made, and they would go to great lengths. And to, they were successful. You know, to make. I mean, I and they were successful. Right. Yeah. yeah I mean, that's true. the reason why I shot Canon was because I got a Canon. And then I bought mm -hmm. another Canon lens, and when I bought a new Canon right. body, it was for a, a new Canon lens. So, you know, exactly. And that's and that's uh, there's advantages to that, but there's also there's also disadvantages. And as we have more and more of this kind of idea of fragmented manufacturing, then the universality becomes important again because you know Kodak really screwed up when they made films that would only fit in their cameras. Right, like that was a really poor idea because although <laughs> it, you know there was, it served them well for a long time. For a while, it was profitable, yeah. but in the long run. They've, they're all these orphaned cameras, and you know, as soon as that film isn't available, then all that machinery has gone to waste. Right. So not particularly uh, – not a, a forward thinking. It's just for short-term profit. It's not a forward yeah, thinking. Yeah, well, and – More and more – and it's – and what we're talking about also, there are more and more people that are looking at, at producing open source design. So right. rather than try and own that design and not let anyone else make it, you are going to compete on a different basis. You're going to compete on the basis of quality and service and price and all these things. There's some advantages to that. Um, it, it, we, we've sort of gotten in the U.S., we've gotten into this idea that it's best to, everything should go towards uh, keeping the price low for the consumer and no other, um, and that that's paramount. But it, it isn't necessarily really in the long term the best approach because making a whole lot of cheap products that fall apart and need replacing may actually be more expensive in the long run. Um, sure. Than making something that that will not only last because it's well made, but will last because it's more universal because it will interact or or connect to more other products in the world. Sure. Absolutely. So. Uh, did you get any emails or anything this week or, um, I think Ethan's last email was, uh, before the last show. Yeah. I mean, I have not, not anything that, 
that really stands out. I mean, there were people working on some interesting new projects. Um, yeah. There's cool stuff showing up on our, our stream in the uh, uh, homemade podcast. Flickr stream has some new cool new stuff that I've seen. Uh, but no, no one sent me a specific email that, uh, that I want to It's read, been a couple so. of days since I've been there. And uh, just so everybody knows, this semester has started... So I'm prepping a bunch of new classes, so I'm a little bit slow, uh, on the, uh, on the, uh, participation on the forums on our, uh, the homemade camera podcast forums on Flickr, but, um, but I'm in there. I, I'm in there every once in a while. So, uh, uh, I do get back. Um, but I, but I am kind of slow doing it. One of the things I do want to talk about, um, I do have a new project that I have shown on Instagram at least. Um, and that is, uh, a square pinhole camera, uh, using 135, uh, film. And, uh, it is super small pocket size. Uh, but I believe that the pinhole that I chose, which was half a millimeter, um, no, sorry, not half a millimeter. That would be huge. Uh, 0.05 millimeter, um, mm-hmm. was too small. Right. And cause it got, it was very, very fuzzy. It was fuzzier than it should have been. Um, right. so I have ordered some one tenth millimeter pinholes, um, from and I don't I don't mind promoting uh an eBay seller named Fire Seller sixty six. Uh, it's a guy named Tim. Uh, he does a lot of um and uh and I think he has a camera shop that's associated with it, but I don't know that for sure. But um but anyway, he does some excellent uh laser drilled pinholes, quick turnaround. Uh, I emailed him on Friday uh afternoon about um getting some uh pinholes in a certain size in a certain disc size and he said sure no problem and uh you know and and it was within a few minutes and and they're on their way to me so um uh highly recommend him as a source oh i i have i have something that i wanted to mention um there are a lot of people out there who shoot instant film i'm not one of them but uh, I mean, you know, I do it occasionally, but it's not, I'm not one of the uh, people obsessed with instant film, but it's a huge thing right now. And one of the things people are really looking for are more capable cameras that you can use with instant film. And a lot of the instant backs that used to exist are gone. Either there's no film for them anymore or right. no one's making the back. So for instance, Lomography for a while had made a back that went on the Bel Air and people were pirating them and putting them onto mercuries and other um kind of do-it-yourself camera systems in order to shoot instax with a, a better lens uh more shutter control that kind of thing and so two pieces of news mercury mercury works has come out with a new uh instax back that's a graph lock well actually they made several different versions a four by five graph lock a two by three graph lock and two ones that are built into a camera body that is a universal camera body that you can use with a wide variety of lenses. And they are allowing you to shoot Instax wide with high quality, medium and large format lenses. So that's pretty exciting. And 
he just made a limited batch of 10, but they're a full, full on, uh, uh, mechanical high quality, you know, Instax processing machine with the Fuji parts and everything put into it. So oh, really? Okay. Home built, home built, um, but really, you know, good quality uh, Instax backs. And the fact that you can stick them on Graflock uh, bodies. Now there is a limit in, there's a, a minimum focal length associated with that. The purpose built ones that have the body attached directly to the back can go down to some really wide angle lenses but um the graph lock ones i think the limit is 75 millimeter just because of focal length that's still decent i mean because it's a big piece of film so that's a fairly wide lens for for instance what's the pricing on these they're pretty expensive uh because this is a you know a hand-built uh bunch of machinery um and they're in the like four or five hundred dollar range oh okay Uh, that's a little bit higher. but for people who really want but people who really want to use Instax wide film, you know, with a full, uh, fully, you know, battery operated mechanical thing that processes the film, uh, and be able to put it on, you know, high quality lens. It's pretty exciting. But that, when I was, I was clicking around looking at stuff on Flickr, I ran into this guy who goes by option eight, O P T I O N eight, the number eight. Uh, and he's, He's putting high quality lenses right on some. He's like basically he's butchering an Instax camera and sticking oh right large format lens on it. And, and there's a couple of these on our Flickr stream. On there, they look really nice. So he's putting a a helical mounted medium or large format lens right onto an existing camera, and that seems like a, a smart way to do it too. Yeah, they're the Instax mini cameras, um, which are. Um... Uh, in fact, his, he's got two that are in right now when we're recording this. Uh, uh, picture number two and picture number three in our um, uh, Flickr stream for our group. And he's, yeah, he's put a Copal Polaroid um, Tominon lens on the front of one. Yeah, those are, de- those are decent lenses. That's a 75 millimeter yeah, lens. Yeah, and then... Um. Uh, a Schneider. And it's on a helical. Uh, a yeah. 90 millimeter Schneider, Schneider Angulon, right. not Super Angulon, but Angulon. Yeah, but the, yeah. but for the size, I mean, Instax yeah. wide, I don't remember exactly what size it is, but it's it's in the medium yeah. format range. It's a oh, good size. Okay, so one of, these is on, and, one of these is on an Instax square, and the other one's on an Instax. Right, and one's on a wide. Right, right. So that that's a that's a decent decently wide field of view. So you know that's a that's a pretty cool camera, and uh, I, they look you know that looks like a really that's a really direct approach. Just get the camera, mount a lens on it, and go. Oh, and we have <laughs> I, and we have some. And I am going to stop it right there. Okay, so this is Graham. Um, my audio. Um, was not reliably recorded past this point. So uh, it, it's okay. It's just a little bit of the outro. Uh, but you would only hear half the outro. And uh, Nick didn't know my my uh, audio wasn't recording, and I didn't either until uh, I started uh, putting this together for the edit. So this is just a, a little bit of, um, you know, uh, final outro information. And... Um, uh, the other thing um, that I realized after we recorded 
is that I had not given, or nor had Nick given, an update on the Scamera. So um, Nick is uh, slowly taking his apart and seeing, you know, what he can do with it. So it, it, he doesn't have anything really to report uh, of of anything new um, uh, in his Scamera uh, project. My Scamera project, I have managed to get the Minolta lens mounted to um, what was a uh, an extension tube, um, and I have it mounted on the camera. The problem is that I have not calibrated focus very well. I am also getting some pretty heavy vignetting from the throat of the uh, the shutter cone uh, that's in there. Um, just think of it as an inverted ice cream cone um, with a you know the end of it lopped off, and and that's where the shutter sits. Uh, well, it's not a very large opening, and I'm not able to get any really good solid images from it. So um, that's where we stand. So um, if you want to get a hold of me, I am Graham at Homemade Camera. Uh, I'm also on Instagram as Graham Homemade Camera. I am on Flickr as Freezer of Photons, all one word. And um, you can get a hold of Nick at Nick at Homemade Camera, at HomemadeCamera.com. Uh, you can also find Nick on uh, Flickr at Nick Lyle. He is AV Nick uh, or Avi Nick, A-V-Y-N-I-C-K on Instagram. So if you want to get a hold of us, you can get a hold of us that way. Um, we are part of the... Um, Film Podcast Network, uh, which is a listing of podcasts um, that deal with film and experimental photography. If um, you have a podcast uh, that we don't know about yet, uh, go to the website and fill out the form and we will add you. And we have you listed in the order in which the requests for listing were received. We'd also like to thank uh, Robbie Cribs of Soundtrap Studios, who uh, composed our music and allows us to use it each week. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm proud of our, our music. Uh, I think our music is really good. And, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs>